0: All right, so I'm going to read from 1 John. Again, that's a letter near the very back of the Bible. I'm going to read from chapter 2, and we're going to read pretty long. It's from verse 18 all the way down to 27. And it says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Stacey. Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all, and it's good to worship, to sing, to sing truth. To sing truth Uh, so often in a world where we feel we are surrounded and oppressed by falsehood, by lies. Uh, We do live in an age, I think we can say, an age of lies. It's been called the information age. And with that explosion of information, we've, we've gained limitless access to knowledge um, at, the, at our fingertips. But it has also uh, yielded a proliferation of misinformation, of slander, and of lies. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm weary from all the half-truths and lies that fill our social media feed so often, our news feed, and it is wearisome. Unsubstantiated instantiated conspiracy theories fill right-wing chat rooms, and that's not just you know some new radical group or fringe white supremacist lunacy. That's our That's like grandma's Facebook page now. And, of course, on the left, I mean, we have cooked-up fact-checkers that themselves need to be fact-checked, debunking the truth with selective information and access to facts. Fake news is on both sides of the political aisle. And it's wearisome. As God's people, we have to ask, how do we respond to this? With integrity, not compromise. How do we respond with wisdom, not cynicism, which can no longer see truth anywhere? I love this psalm. It's the beginning of the psalm of ascent, Psalm 120. The psalmist begins his ascent to God's presence with a lament he says, "Oh God, in my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from what? Lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? What shall be done to you, O deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows and glowing coals from the broom tree." That's how exhausted he is by the lies. Enough of all these lies, right? <laughs> like what shall be done to these liars? The warrior's arrow. Hot burning coals is what should happen. (laughs) And I feel them. Lies warp and distort reality. You know, every fact in the universe, whether it's a social fact or a scientific fact, is God's fact. When we twist and distort, manipulate, we're distorting divine truth. God cares about that. You know, it's interesting. The book of Revelation says who is outside paradise? Who's outside the wall? Who doesn't get in? The last on the list is all liars. God does not want liars in his camp because he hates lies, and so do his saints. So how do, we, what, how do we respond then? I mean, it's one thing to lament it, to bemoan it, to complain about it, and that's good and right. You know, the psalmist does that. We cry out to God, God, I've had enough lies. But I think we also have to do what Alexander Solzhenitsyn called live not by lies, and the implication being live by the truth. We ourselves must be men and women of the truth. And according to John, as we saw in chapter 1, the first thing that means is we are truthful about our own lies, our own failings. We don't lie about our sin. Because if anyone denies their sin, they are self-deceived. They've deceived, they have lied to themselves. And if anyone says they've not sinned, he says they are liars. The truth is not in them. And so the first thing we as Christians ought to do when we're wrong is confess it. That's why lying is so crazy-making, just not willing to acknowledge what's right in front of us. But we ought to be the first to acknowledge. We ought to be the chief repenters in our society, the chief repenters. When people call us to repentance, we so often feel manipulated. But the reality is, it is good and godly to repent. The second thing we should do is be discerning. We need the spiritual discipline of discernment. And that requires wisdom, requires a gift of wisdom, requires time, patience, learning, confessing, (laughs) so that we learn and grow. It's been disheartening, I know, for many of us to watch so many self-proclaimed Christians fall prey to one deception after another in recent days whether it's lies that have been spun about victims of racial hate, conspiracy theories about rigged voting machines by Venezuelan government, George Soros buying out evangelical leaders, to even things like QAnon. These absurd conspiratorial thinking has infected God's people. We have fallen prey to deception on so many levels. And you might say, well, not me, because one of the hallmarks of our age is that we think ourselves above being fooled, right? Oh, yeah, those masses out there are ignorant, but not me, I'm not deceived. Really. We live in a confusing age, let's be fair. We are all open to deception. What are we to make of Black Lives Matter as an organization, as a movement? What are we to do with... This charge of white supremacy, is this a fiction of the left, meant to bring the majority into a kowtowed fear and and buying into their policies, or is it in fact the root of all evil, right? Or is it something in between those two extremes? What are we to think of fears about the left or the right? Is Antifa the threat of the age, or is it these new right-wing radicals like Proud Boys that we should be concerned about? And I, I haven't even mentioned COVID. How should we respond to COVID? Are, are, are we way too conservative with all these lockdowns and measures? Are we prolonging the inevitable of herd immunity and bringing with it econ- unnecessary economic and psychological harm? Or have we been far too liberal and too loosey-goosey and, and downplayed the, the massive impact this virus has had on the medically vulnerable? And I haven't even touched on religion. (laughs) We are in need of discernment, now more so than ever. In fact, I want to pray that God would do just that, would gift us with discernment as we dive into his text this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Jesus confessed. May your truth sanctify us this morning and make us wise for salvation. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. John begins in verses 18 and 19 by reminding the churches he's writing to that the hour is late. And the reason why he says this is the last hour is he wants to orient them as to where they find themselves. The place they find themselves, to quote Adam Young, is in a war. You are in a war. This is the last days. Not only are lies and deceit rampant, they are dire and dangerous. These aren't just harmless lies, these are massive whoppers that are demonic. Look what John, or rather, Paul writes about these last days. Real quick, this is from 2 Thessalonians. There is a man of lawlessness. He hasn't come yet, just as John has said. You have heard the Antichrist is coming. There is a man of lawlessness. He hasn't come yet. Don't be deceived. He must come. He hasn't come yet. But look at the very last line there. But the mystery of this lawlessness is already at work. Just as John says, even now there are many Antichrists the spirit of demonic deceptions among us. And why do I say demonic? Well, Paul tells Timothy this at Ephesus on the screen you'll see. He says, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. They will apostatize by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demon, demons that, are, that, that come through the insincerity of liars, of false teachers, false self-proclaimed prophets and gurus and experts whose consciences are sealed. They know they're lying. They don't care. They know they're hypocrites. They don't care. And so these demonic teachings, Paul tells Timothy, are already operating in Ephesus. So Timothy, be ready. Be prepared for this. And we need to be prepared as well. The last day's deception is upon us and evident in a variety of ways. It's so dire that Jesus says this that all these false Christs and prophets will will arise. And he says their, their deception will be so powerful. Listen to what Jesus says. They will lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's how powerful it is, the deception. So if we think that we are above deception, we are in a very vulnerable and dangerous place. We need to recognize the place we find ourselves, and it is a world of deep, deep deception and lies that are operating even right now, even as we speak. So we need to know the hour. We need to know the who. He says they went out from us in verse 19, yet they were not of us. He literally says this, John loves paradox, They went out from us, but they were not from us. You know what I mean? If they were really from us, as if we sent them, they would still be with us, but they're not. They went out from us to to demonstrate the distinction. It's like John saying, in their departure from us, he literally used the word abide. They no longer abide with us. They've been unmasked. And now you know who they are. This is how you know it's the last hour. They went out from us. We have false teachers who were in our midst as as Christians in America who have gone out from us. I'm going to name them because John, when John says they, they're talking about specific people that his audience knew and he knew, right? So I'll just name two. Rob Bell and Bishop Carlton Pearson were two men who were thick Gifted leaders in the church here in America, they are not from us because they are no longer with us. And when I say us, I don't mean evangelicalism or our denomination or our particular brand of Christianity. I mean they are no longer with the apostles. They no longer walk according to the gospel. And So, as Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. We know the Antichrists because they, f- they fail to abide. They fail to endure. They fail to persist in the faith. In fact, perseverance in the faith is the hallmark of true faith. Perseverance in the faith is the hallmark of true faith. And so, we recognize the hour, but we also have got to recognize the lie. Verse 20 and following. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And he's saying that because these false teachers who went out from them were, were peddling a gospel predicated on their ignorance and said, you must hear us out because you do not know. We know. Therefore, you must listen to us. John's saying, I'm not writing to you because you're ignorant. You know. And so I write to you because you do know the truth. Don't let these liars deceive you. You have the truth and you know it. Don't let them steal your inheritance, rob you of your riches. But then he goes on to say, not only do you know the truth, but you know that no lie comes from the truth. That's a interesting statement. No lie comes from the truth. It's like what he said about God. God is light in whom there's no darkness. God is truth and no falsehood ever comes from him. That's how you know what's true. If a lie came from it, it's not true. This would be really helpful when it comes to a lot of our cults and conspiracy theories that have been falsified over and over again. Their predictions do not come true, but they always find clever ways around their falsification, right? That's how you know it's manipulative. It's not of the truth. It lies. It lies. But notice what he didn't say. He didn't say no truth comes from the lie. He didn't say that. Because the lie often speaks truths. As my professor in seminary used to say, it takes a lot of truth to float a lie. Satan, in the wilderness, when he tempted Jesus, quoted Scripture, right? And so what often happens is we experience a truth from some source, maybe an insight into ourselves. That's very true and new and revolutionary for us. And it's easy to be deceived and think, well, then that must be the truth. Well, all truth is God's truth wherever it's found. Even in the mouth of the devil, it's still God's truth. But that doesn't mean the devil is trustworthy. And so we need to be discerning that just because we experience truth from something, that doesn't make it true, right? It might be using truth to push a lie, which is what the devil does so brilliantly. He uses truth to push a lie. You know, the devil's greatest weapon forged against us isn't uh, uh, the flames of hell or a pitchfork. It's the lie. That's his greatest weapon. And he's very good at wielding it. And he wields it in, 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 in all sorts of ways. And so we need to be discerning and watch out because we will fall if we are not careful. He writes these things to you not because you don't have the truth, but as he says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. You are under assault. You're under attack. You need to know that. You need to know that you are... People are trying to deceive you. And if we're not aware of that, we will fall prey. Again, we, we don't recognize the hour that we're in. So we've got to recognize that there are liars who are lying. And how do we know the lie? Well, John tells us in verse 22, who is the liar? Who is the liar? He is the one who denies Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So what is this all about? John says this multiple times about the lie, the nature of the lie. Uh, look at, uh, on the screen in ch- from chapter 4. We'll get there in a few weeks. By this you know the spirit of truth. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is in the world already. Or in 2 John, verse 7, he says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. You'll notice all the lies have to do with Jesus Christ. The lie is Christological in nature. And in particular, it denies the coming of Jesus in the flesh. It denies the identification of the Christ, the Holy One, With Jesus of Nazareth his flesh and blood reality part of the heresy here is deity does not deign to put on crass flesh and blood part of the heresy here is the belief that the Godhead almighty does not succumb to suffering and death and burial part of the lie here is that the all-glorious one never suffers humiliation. Being rejected, mocked, spat on, stripped. Jesus did all those things. So there's a denial here of suffering. It's a spirituality of anti-suffering. Spirituality of power. And indeed, Christianity is a religion of power, but a very different kind of power. On the screen, you'll see where Paul again talks to Timothy about these last days. He says, understand this then, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Can I get an amen? (laughs) It's been difficult. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. And there Paul's using godliness in the Greek sense of of religion. They have the appearance of Christianity is what he's saying, but denying its power. They do want power, but not Christianity's power. Earlier in this letter, the only other time Paul uses the word power He says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift given to you. For you are given not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And then the very next verse, the very next verse. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel or me, God's prisoner. But share in suffering by the power of God. True Christian power is the power to suffer well. These heretics denied suffering. Heresy for them was suffering. The Christ did not suffer. Think about it. Even the false teachings of Rob Bell and Carlton Pearson in their rejection of hell is ultimately rejection of Jesus' sufferings. Because what was it that Jesus suffered in Golgotha? But hell itself. When they declare that hell is unjust, they declared the infinite wrath of God poured out on Christ as he bore our sins in his body unjust. They deny either that his sufferings were what they were the endurance of hell itself, or they declare it unrighteous. They deny Jesus Christ in the flesh. Now, we believe our modern gospel is one of upward mobility. Life gets better and better in every way every day, right? Civilization should be getting better and better. Everything should be getting better. But the gospel is one of downward mobility, from heaven he came. He took on the form of a servant and suffered death, even death on a cross. It's a downward movement. And this isn't a call for us to take up our um, martyr mindset and say, let's go suffer for the gospel, or let's go be persecuted. We don't yet really live in America in a persecution context. But here's what it does mean. I can pick up my cross daily, and die to myself. In fact, that is the path of power, self-denial. Power, love, self-control. The, the ability, as, as Don Carson puts it, I would rather die to myself than indulge in my sin. I would rather die to myself than indulge sin. That is the call of the gospel that we deny when we turn our Christianity into a gospel message of upward mobility. What if this, what if instead as you, as you mature in your career, as you mature in your finances, what if instead of following the American dream of buying bigger and better and newer and nicer, we used our increased social, economic, relational power to serve others? What if that's what the gospel looks like? And I say that as someone who just bought a, newer, a new house. <laughs> that's a little bit bigger than my old house. But I do pray that it's used for ministry and that it's a place that it can be poured out for the welfare of others and not self indulgence. This is true power, and it's what was being denied. Finally, I recognize the truth. We can recognize the lie. The lie denies the sufferings of Christ, it denies the downward movement of the gospel, it pushes for upward mobility, promotion of self, but we recognize the truth in a very interesting way. I I said we'd go back to it, verse 20, you've been anointed by the Holy One. What is that? Well, the Holy One could be the Father, Jesus calls Him Holy Father in John 17, or it could be Jesus. Peter confesses Jesus in John 6, 69 as the Holy One of God. Whoever the Holy One is, he has gifted this anointing. And this anointing is very interesting because it's the only place in the Bible this language is used of Christians. Now, Paul will use a similar word. It's the same root, but a different form of it. Uh, to Christians, and I think this gives us some insight as to what John means when he says, you have the anointing, and the anointing abides in you, and it teaches you everything you need. And you're like, what is this anointing? What is he talking about? Well, here's, here's a text that might shed some light. First Corinthians, or second Corinthians, rather. Well, Paul writes this. It's God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us. It's the same root word, chrismum, where we get Christ. It's kind of, actually, actually kind of interesting. He's saying these antichrists are saying you don't have it, but you have the chrism. You have the anointing. You share in Christ's anointing. So don't let these fools push you out of your inheritance. But he says, Paul goes on to say, he has anointed us. He also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Are those three different things? Anointing, seal, spirit? or are those three ways of getting at one reality. In Ephesians Paul writes this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed him, you were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. So the anointing here seems to be this kind of indelible mark that was made on our hearts when we heard that gospel, the word we heard from the beginning. And we believed. We were convicted. We recognized the Good Shepherd's voice by the Spirit's work. And that mark is on us. You know, anointing, when someone anointed somebody, literally, it was, it was, a, it was a messy affair. You poured, it wasn't just like a little dab. You poured oil over so it dripped down. Psalms described as just soaking off Aaron's beard. And it was warm. And you could feel it oozing down over your head. And and the aroma would have filled the room. Aaron is set apart for a holy office, marked indelibly for life. So have you been, dear saint. You have been anointed. As William Tyndale puts it, you weren't anointed with oil on the body. You were anointed by the Holy Spirit in your soul. Indelibly marked forever. The guarantee sealing your redemption Let that anointing abide. What what does the anointing teach me? What does it say in verse 24? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That gospel word. That that truth. The Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus says, will teach us all things and bring into remembrance what Jesus taught. The Spirit will spur up that gospel seed that was planted in you and will bring it to remembrance. But we have a responsibility in this. Namely, in verse 24, we have to let it abide in us. That's what he says. It's a command. Let this word abide in you. And the word abide doesn't just mean sitting there. It means to dwell, to live, to flourish. I, I like how Paul puts it in Colossians. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that it pours out of your speech. It fills your mind and your heart. It shapes your and bends your will because it's you're filling yourself up with this word are we doing that now the reason why I think so many of us as Christians have fallen prey to conspiratorial thinking or radical doubt or cynicism is because we have filled our minds with what the truth or our news feeds and so we have been shaped poorly, we've been discipled poorly by the culture to become cynics and doubters and conspiracists rather than truth-tellers who can discern truth from error and can speak truth in love. So what's filling your mind and your heart? What are you, how are you feasting on God's Word daily, maybe hourly, through reading Scripture, memorizing Scripture, meditating on Scripture? praying scripture. You ever prayed scripture? You ever done that before? Just open the Bible and turn those words into a prayer. We did this uh, last week with the staff. We had a, a Psalms conference with our denomination. And the guy just opened up Psalm 23 and said the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray that. Oh Lord, shepherd me today in the decisions I have to make. Shepherd my wife as she has to do this. Shepherd my children. Alright, next was that. I shall not want. Lord, I, I want a lot of things. <laughs> Lord, here are some things I want. I mean, what does it look like to just regularly pray the Bible? It's just a daily routine. It could take five minutes of your time. But is the word in you? Is it dwelling? Is it filling your heart and your mind and your affections? As Stacy said, you know the counterfeits because you really know the real thing. You really know it. It's in you. Uh, Lastly, not only do we have to attend to the gospel word, we need to obey it, we need to put it into practice means we live it. We don't live by lies, we live by the truth. The gospel directs our sense of identity, our daily course of action, our decisions, our priorities, our aspirations and ambitions. Is the gospel fueling your hope in a world of despair and deception? One of the ways that we know that the gospel's not feeding us, that we're not feasting on it, one of the ways you know you're really spiritually hungry, in a bad sense, is that we're in despair. We're in despair. I, mean, I don't just mean sadness. Sadness happens to every saint. I mean despair, hopelessness. Hopelessness is a sure sign we are not feasting on the promise of God. And what is this promise to us, guys? What is the promise of this anointing, this sealing? Well, look at verse 25. And this is the promise that he made to us. I love, again, John, very literal. John says, and this is the promise that he promised us. He promised us a promise. He's like talking like a kid, right? But you promised me a promise. Yeah, indeed, God has promised you a promise, and he is good on his word. And what is that promise to you? Eternal life. That is your destiny. It's your inheritance. Don't let anyone steal it from you. Don't let anyone rob you of the joy of it. It's your eternal inheritance. We're going to feast here at the Lord's table where we literally act out the promise that Jesus says, I poured out my blood to give you eternal life. I gave you my body, and I did not pour out my body and my blood in vain. What I poured out is effective. Your eternal life is secure. And so I'm going to take a moment. The band's going to come up. We're going to pray. We're just going to play some music while we pray, reflect. Maybe we need to confess sins as truth tellers. Maybe we need to reappropriate some of this truth and prepare our hearts to feast. After a moment, the ushers will pass out the elements, and then we'll take those all together in celebration. So let me pray as we start that time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that gives us hope, that gives us an anchor. In a storm-tossed world of so many counterfeit claims, contradictory propositions and assertions, Lord, we thank you that your word to us is clear, it's simple, and it's trustworthy. Lord, help us to anchor our souls now to that word that we heard from the beginning. May your anointing that's in all of us by faith be given through Jesus Christ, amen.